Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera. I am coming to you once again from my home, isolated from all the other off-camera employees and pretty much everyone else except for my kids, while bringing you a special coronavirus edition of this show. Now, as you know, for the last several weeks, we've been putting on some of my favorite episodes from the past, and this is a way to sort of bring new listeners in that haven't heard the show before and sort of hear the ones that I feel like are the best examples of the show and... It's also a way to highlight some guests that I feel like really expressed our philosophy of why we wanted to do the show in the first place. So I hope you're enjoying sort of a trip down memory lane. And I've also been, you know, thinking a lot about what we're going through as a society. And a few weeks ago, I asked anyone who wanted to share their experience of this virus and the way it's changed their life to send me an email. And I've gotten a lot of emails and one thing that is overwhelmingly clear is that artists are finding their own unique ways to deal with the situation we're in. And honestly, I think that this is where I feel most grateful, is that I have the ability and the desire to go inside my mind, inside my imagination, and make things. And because of that, I don't feel as maybe isolated or lost as I would if I didn't have that ability and that desire. I mean, certainly before this virus hit us, I spent an entire career, a lifetime, going into a room by myself and getting to know my brain, my self-critic, my bad habits, my creative style. And I think that I've done a lot of work unknowingly that has helped me through this crisis. But one thing I miss the most is I certainly feed off of human connection. And it's been really hard not to be around the people that I love you know, my parents, my friends, my co-workers, and not to be able to share ideas in our old human way. I had a birthday a few weeks ago, and we did a Zoom call like so many others, and we'll be setting one up for my daughter's birthday. And it's different, but it also sort of makes you appreciate what we do have and the effort that everyone's making to try to make this as tolerable and normal as possible. And, you know, I don't want to get into things that you're all hearing on the news but I will say that being in California especially and seeing the results already, even though they've been small, it's very encouraging that we're in a state that really pushed for extreme social distancing. And because of that, our hospitals have not reached capacity. And California was able to actually ship ventilators to states that needed them more. So I believe in this social distancing. I believe in following the rules. I believe in washing hands and staying apart and trusting that we will all, oh there's the cat and trusting that we will all get through this together and get to the other side there's obviously going to be great tragedies involved with this and there already have been and that is sobering and frightening so the best we can all do is to follow the rules of social distancing take care of ourselves take care of our family and try to stay sane most importantly especially if you're a parent is give yourself a break that's a lesson that i have a hard time learning but it's so important to not be too hard on ourselves at this time because it is full of anxiety and the unknown and you just have to try to be nice to yourself in these unprecedented times. So before we get to the episode, I want to read a letter that illustrates some of the things I've been talking about, especially the reaction to this pandemic from an artist. And this is from Pierre, a 32-year-old French boy, as he describes himself, 
now living in Vancouver for a year to follow his dream of becoming an actor. And he says, This surreal situation happening right now in the world makes me reflect a lot on my own story and journey. And your recent invitation to share our feelings regarding the isolation allows me to write these words in order to maybe ease my soul a little. I've spent the last 10 years living away from my family and friends, leaving my dear south of France to pursue my acting dream in Montreal, Paris, London, Los Angeles, and now Vancouver. I've learned within the years to be grateful to have seen much more of the world than my own parents, and I've met so many people. I've learned to be grateful for the heartbreaks, the joy, and even my father passing when I was 20, because it all contributed to the man I am today. And yet, among these lessons, there's never been a greater one than the apparition of this virus, putting us all not only into isolation, but also back on the same level, reminding us that we're all human beings, and in my case, facing the reality of living the wrong life for too long. Long story short, my parents never thought of acting as a real job, and after a series of events, I started earning a living as a hairdresser, and I am still a hairdresser today, because, quote, you have to pay the bills, and because you have to pay for more acting classes, and have to change your accent, and because I have been afraid to step into the real world of acting until I feel worthy, instead of realizing my strength in the uniqueness of being me. This situation makes me realize how short and precious life is, and I cannot keep living it like a zombie who forgot his true self and his true goals. I tried to be completely honest with myself and admit at some point that the last few years I've been driven by fame, money, and pride. Our society has placed so much importance on image and ego, using social media as a platform of comparison, competition, and judgment, and it made me sad to think that I've been a victim of it and that the only reason I want to be an actor today would be to become rich and famous, living the American dream. This COVID-19 situation, even though it is really scary and unpleasant, will help us see the world as it should be seen, care for the planet as it should be cared, and of course value lives as they should be valued. As days pass in confinement, I tend to isolate myself in my childhood, whether it's through films, songs, or memories. I have more time to write, whether it is a script or book idea, or simply in journal form, and I can feel it again. I can feel the creativity and the imagination that my soul has always wanted to express. I remember the storyteller that I am, the will that I have to communicate through this magical art called acting, and the possibility to live lots of different lives within one. I was born full of imagination and creativity. It's in me, it's who I am, and who I've always been. But I also remember through isolation the importance of family, this feeling of not being able to see my family, this feeling of my country being closed, me being thousands of miles away. That shows me how much I love my family, and how much they love me back, and how much I need to hug them. I also remember how beautiful and precious our planet is, and how much we need Earth more than Earth needs us. I remember how grateful I am to come from France, a country that provides financial help to those less fortunate in other countries. And of course, I remember how doctors and nurses are the real superheroes, much more than the actors playing them. But actors are important too because they can help people dream, forget their trouble for a time, and make us remember that we're not alone. Sam Jones, it is with a lot of sincerity and respect and love that I thank you for keeping me dreaming through your podcast, and from the bottom of my heart, thank you for this opportunity to express my feelings. And remember, if you really took the time to read my email completely, you are my hero. Best wishes, Pierre. Well, Pierre, of course I read your letter, and it really moved me, and that's why I wanted to share it with everybody. It really brings home what's important, and I appreciate you sharing and taking the time to write it. Now we're going to move on to the episode, and I've chosen Michael Shannon this week. 
Michael Shannon was a guy that both intrigued me and sort of intimidated me because I'd never met him before. And he came on the show. He's a big, tall guy. He's got a brooding presence. He's a little scary. (laughs) But it turned out he was the sweetest, nicest guy in the world. And he is a true artist. He is, at times, tortured, melancholy, has definitely battled demons and had a rough upbringing to get to the place where he is. And I found his story fascinating. And I hope you will, too. And in the spirit of digging into our deepest artistic self, I present this coronavirus edition of Off Camera. I hope you enjoy. Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. In this episode, I sit down with acclaimed actor Michael Shannon. If you're like me, there are just a few artists whose work you know you'll follow, no matter what. When I hear that Michael Shannon is in a movie, I don't need to know what it's about or read a review. I know I'm going to see it, and I know I'm going to have an extraordinary film experience. His track record is full of films like Revolutionary Road, Take Shelter, 99 Homes, and Tom Ford's Nocturnal Animals. So I was really interested to know what draws him to the projects he chooses. I was kind of heartbroken to hear what drew him to acting in the first place. But it's all part of the experience he draws on to turn in some of the most truthful performances you'll ever see. In this episode, we talk about what he loves about the business he's been in since he was 16. And we also talk about the record I'm hoping he'll break next year. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Michael. Hey, Sam. Thanks for doing this. No problem. It's really nice of you to come. I know that this has been a busy year for you. In fact, I think it must be some kind of world record. that hmm. you've. I think you have 10 films out in this calendar year. Really? Yeah. And that's got to be a record, right? I guess so. I, I, you know, I, I don't really keep tabs on it. Um, and it's weird with movies because just because a movie comes out doesn't mean you made it recently. You know, it could sure. be a movie that they've been sitting on. But yeah... I, it seems pretty uh, ridiculous, yeah, 10, 10 movies. Well, I think it gives hope for, you know, directors and that just call Michael Shannon. He, <laughs> he won't say no. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to extend that. Uh, <laughs> I don't want that getting out well, too in the late. papers. You uh, do 10 films in a year. Yeah. And uh, I think I've, that's the, the, the apex. I think now it's about shrinking it back down to, you know, no films a year. Yeah. Well, you know, I saw um, recently was Loving, yeah. and uh, that's your fifth film with Jeff Nichols. Yeah. And you play a photojournalist, which is a pretty small role. I think you're in two scenes. Yeah. And, and yet it really struck me because that was my gig. That was my first gig in life was as a photojournalist. Yeah. And, um, and I had that job of sometimes going out and having to sort of ingratiate myself into a intimate situation mm-hmm. and from the moment you show up in that film and you're you're affable and you're you're you know your cameras are hitting around your neck right. they're hitting each other and and uh and I thought you totally sold the idea that this guy was a photojournalist from Life magazine in the 50s cuz you're playing a real character oh yeah gray villette yeah so how did you research that i mean and, and i guess the question is for such a small role, do you, you still have to do all the work, right? It doesn't matter if you're on screen for two minutes or... Yeah, because I'm not a, you know, like you pointed out, I'm not a photojournalist, but I, uh, 
You know, it's very easy. If you, if you want to find out about Gray Ballette, you can, you know, you can Google the guy, and he has a, a website that kind of devoted to his, his life and his legacy. Yeah. Him taking those pictures of that couple uh, changed their lives, and it changed the country. It changed, it changed the, the law. Yeah. There was a before and an after. It's a beautiful thing. I was very moved by it. I was very moved by his curiosity. You know, those life photographers were just some of the most noble people. They, what they were attempting to do to, to give to the, the populace, you know, in, in terms of broadening their understanding of, of the world, you know. Sometimes I look at the magazines now when you go to the airport or whatever and you see a bunch of trashy yeah. crap and you're like, man, it would have been so great to be around back then and picked up Life magazine and, and just had my mind blown all the time, you know, with these pictures of uh, these photo essays of, of things that I would have otherwise not known about, you know. So you went pretty deep into that and looked yeah. at it. Like there's a scene in the film where Joel Edgerton and Ruth Nega, who play the Lovings, are laying on the couch watching TV and you're in the room trying to document mm -hmm. this scene and you're doing something that is very common to both documentary filmmaking and photojournalism, which is you're trying to be in the room without being in the room and you're trying not to disturb the intimacy and at one point you just pick up your camera a little bit. And, and with every bone in your body, you're trying to ingratiate yourself into the room, but also be a part of the wall. Right. And then you just, camera comes up and back down, and it's one frame. And that, that is the essence of that kind of photography and the conundrum of documentary photography. And I don't think you just learned that from a website. I mean, how did you, was that in the script or was that something that? Well, you know, I've had a fascination with photography for years, uh, years and years, I'm, and I'm, uh, I follow it, you know. Uh, I was just reading about uh, Walker Evans, who did that a lot, um, uh, shooting without looking through the, eye, the, the eyepiece. But well, yeah, with that particular shot, I was trying to recreate, we, because that is that's a that's one of the most famous pictures of the Lovings. Right. Is that picture of them on their lap? Yeah. yeah. So I was just imagining. I was like, how can that? What would be the angle that would match that photo? That would create that photo? And I'm not sure if I hit it or not, but I at least had something I was trying to, I was aiming for. Well, it's it's a window into your work in that I think you know for someone who's obviously you're six four and you're pretty you know, pretty hulking presence of a man, and yet you do disappear into these things. And like uh, in Nocturnal Animals, mm -hmm. uh, you, you play a detective that has lung cancer. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm going to walk away from that film, and one of the things I'm gonna remember most in the years to come is how, the, how lung cancer sort of affected all the decisions of your character and, and, <laughs> exactly. and how that decision gets made and how, you know, I, I wonder if with acting, if you were trying to grab onto little things that, that are keys that open up big parts of who this person is. Well, I mean, it all starts out rather innocently, you know, I don't go in with any sort of grand agenda or that I'm going to, you know, illustrate this or that or crystallize this or that. I just say, oh, this is a good story and... I like this character. He seems like an interesting person, and then, and then you just spend time with it, and you know you get time being on a film set. It's interesting because you'll 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 dive into a scene and, and take a stab at it, and then 
and then you get like a break or while you're waiting for the next setup or and and so then you get to kind of chew on it a little bit more and then you go back and you do it again and then inevitably I, I feel like anyway that uh, the longer I work on something the, the further I get into the character which is so that's interesting. You don't feel like you have to have it all figured out before shooting starts. No, usually the the, the first day of shooting on an, on any pretty much any film I've done, it's it's very much like the first day of school. You know, it's you have you just feel like you have no idea what is going on. But well, what happens if the first day turns out to be that just by bad luck? A very pivotal scene. That's happened. You know, when we shot Take Shelter, Jeff said, I, um, I can try and explain this to you, although it probably won't make any sense. But today, the first day, we have to shoot the scene with you and Jessica at the shrinks at the end of the movie. Oh, my God. Where, where he recommends that you go to a mental hospital. I'm like, we have to do that today. And he's like... I swear to God, I've gone over it, and I'm just telling you, it has to be the day. And like Jessica and I, it just barely kind of, we had a, maybe a, a dinner and a lunch at that point together. And, and we should say, Jess, you're talking Jessica about Jessica Chastain. Chastain. Yeah, who plays my wife and uh, takes shelter. But that can be cool too. You know, I'm really into, uh, I have a history of, of improvisation, doing improv in Chicago. Not that we were, we were saying the script and lines, but the spirit, the improvisational spirit, where you, because you have a lot in your subconscious. Like all of this work, whether you have five minutes or five years to do it, is basically you're extracting things that are dormant in your subconscious. So you're saying you draw on your own human existence and, yeah. and your own behavior as much as you do creating. Well, like that little link up I was talking about with Gray Ballette, you know, it's like the, the, the new thing I do is I go and look at his website and think about him, but that leads me down a path, a neural pathway of all the times I've thought about photography in my life, all the times I've endeavored to do it myself or seen other great photographers do work that I admire, you know, it just... It's all in there all the time. So sometimes if you're, you know, auditioning or trying to get a job, you don't, you don't have the luxury of uh, a lot of time to, to think about right, it. Right, right. So, and that, in a way, that's where you got to do your best work so you, so you can get the job, you know. It's funny. I would, think, I would think when an actor stops having to audition, maybe there's something they're missing out on in terms of a little bit of discovery. It's interesting, you know, we weren't like super close friends, but I, I knew Phil Seymour Hoffman, and um, he always preferred, I, I heard that he always preferred to, to read for projects, that he was uncomfortable taking a job that he hadn't auditioned for, because he didn't want to get on set and have him and the director realize that they had two different completely different ideas of who the character was. Yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah. I don't feel that way, though. You don't. I, I don't miss auditioning at all. I, you don't. I can't stand it. When was the last time you did it? The last film I auditioned for, I think it was in Nebraska. Really? That's interesting. We had Will Forte on and talked a lot about Nebraska. So you, did you audition for that role? You did. I think they auditioned everybody for that well, role. Well, you know, it's a great script. It's a great opportunity. I wanted it, you know. 
I like uh, Alexander Payne's work. Yeah. And uh, I love Bruce Dern. I've always... You know, it's, it's almost like you wish that, that movies could do different versions. Yeah, right? Like a band, like when the Rolling Stones cover a Dylan song or when... Well, some of them do. It, it does happen. It, at, it does at, happen. Look at Psycho. That's right. Although that was maybe a bit of a failed experiment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I think, like, God, I would like to see the version of Nebraska with you in that role. Mm. Because it would be a totally different movie. I thought when I saw it, and I, I loved the movie, but it, it seemed a little lighter to me tonally than what I had imagined when I read it. But maybe that's what Alexander wanted the whole time, and I was just, I was too dark or something. I don't know. Yeah, you just, you don't know, I guess. That's amazing. You know, going back to Jeff Nichols uh, for a minute, you said once that working with Jeff is almost like not acting at all. Mm. And I wonder if that was referring to a specific thing or a general way that that his films go. Well, Jeff has a lot of respect for the artists he works with and for his audience and for the act of storytelling in general. And he he's, he's always endeavoring to find a way to tell a story without any um, manipulation uh, whatsoever. It's just something very Tai Chi about the way he, he tries to, to tell a story. And I, and I admire that. You know, when I say it's, it's like not acting, it's just the characters that I played for Jeff in each particular scene, very clearly they're just trying to do something. And so if you just try and do what your character is trying to do, which in, in theory is how acting is supposed to go in general, but it, it really feels that way with Jeff's movies, that you can just forget about the performance aspect of it or, you know. Yeah, his character. Am, am I never... thrilling the audience? Yeah. Or am I being entertaining right now? It's like, well, who, who cares? I mean, you just do, you do what the character's trying to do, and that tells the story. It's not everybody's cup of tea. I mean, you know, I, I, I've, I've had a lot of great conversations about working with Jeff, and, and I know a lot of people within the industry have a lot of respect for him. But I know there's people that watch his movie and are like, this sucks. I don't know. When is this over? So it's not for everyone, but I don't really care. You know, I just, I think it's, I think it's unique. That's clear. Based on the choices you make, uh, I, I feel like you care only about the work and yeah. not about the results. And I think yeah. that that's what makes you so interesting. I don't know, there's no set way that you seem to have that becomes a through line in all your films. Well, honestly, the main web that I usually get drawn into uh, when I wind up doing a job is, is just the people, the, the other people doing it. Like I'm interested in the the truth. You know, with something like Nocturnal Animals, when I looked at the script, I was like, well, this is upsetting. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. but when it I met, is upsetting. Yeah. But when I met with Tom, I was like, I really, this guy's really fascinating. Like, I would really like to watch him do this and help him do this. And, you know, same thing with Jeff. It's like, it's the people I get the opportunity to, to work with. That uh, That's the main thing that's kind of ringing my bell nowadays. That's interesting. Is, is acting still a mystery to you? Oh, yeah. It is? Totally. Anybody would claim otherwise is full of shit. It's a to- acting is a total mystery. 
everything about it, from how you do it to why you do it to, I mean, I still, from time to time, find myself puzzled that people watch movies at all. I mean, I, I don't understand. We spend so much time watching people pretend to do things that aren't actually happening when there's actually so many real things that we should be taking care of. And I'm like, why do we do this? You know what? I had the same thought the other day. I think I was watching one of your films and I thought, oh, I know why this works on me because I get to be, I get to be a fly on the wall in a situation that I would never normally get to be in. Like, I get to be in a therapist's office or I get to be in an intimate conversation between a husband and wife and I can relate that to my life. And right. I think as humans, we don't care that it's fiction. Right. But I hear you say that and I go, it's exactly what you say. Anyone who says they haven't figured out why it works, why sometimes it works better. Like, do you still have the fear that it, a performance could go totally wrong? I'm not panicky about it. I watch people freak out about acting like, I suck, this sucks, I don't know what I'm doing, oh no. I don't punish myself, I don't hate myself. And I, I think honestly, it's like you say, anything put on camera can be interesting from a certain perspective. Because you are getting to see something that you wouldn't otherwise get to see. You know, I had a question at a Q&A last night. Some young actress was like, doesn't, doesn't the camera bother you, you know, if you're trying to do like a really emotional scene or an intimate scene? And I'm like, well... Dear, the camera has to be there because um, otherwise nobody's going to see it, you know. So you just got to get used to it and, and, uh, and accept it. And, yeah, when I was younger, it used to scare the hell out of me. But now it's like it's all just a big experiment, you know, and I, and I enjoy it. I was like the camera's over there. We're over here doing whatever we're doing. And, and whatever it winds up being... It's going to be interesting to somebody, and it's going to be uninteresting to somebody else. Right. You can't lose. You can't win, and you can't lose. Do you think you can get worse at acting? Yeah. Well, I think I do. I do believe that. I think acting is something that's very hard to do for a sustained period of time. However, if, if you figure out a way to do it, you can do it literally until you fall over dead. But I think it's hard, because at a certain point, you're like, well, how many different people can I be? Like, uh, I've done X amount of people, and I'm only one person. So how, how many more times can I convince people that I'm not myself? Well, you bring up a thing that I think relates to music in the sense that sometimes my favorite records by my favorite bands are their very early ones when they weren't self-aware and they didn't quite know all the tricks. Like, Paul McCartney, to his dying day, can craft a song. But there's no replacing that magic of doing something for the first time and not being totally aware of how you did it. And I wonder if you face that as an actor trying to somehow maintain a, a sense of that organic unknowingness of, of youth. Well... That's gone. I mean, that's gone. I mean, the, the actor that I was when I, and you got to realize when I started doing this in earnest, like 
outside of an educational environment. Uh, I was I was 16 and I was in Chicago, and um, I was just a very 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 different dude. And I since then I have shed many skins. I don't feel like I'm less honest. I just feel like I'm more I'm more aware. And, but not aware in a, like a, a self-conscious way that could be debilitating, but more just like, I'm just more aware of how it works. You know what's in the soup. Yeah, like I understand uh, composition now in a frame, you know. I used to not be able to watch the monitors or, or any of that, you know, I had that very, uh, it's common, I think, that you'll get in your head. But now I watch the monitor all the time because I'm like, the, making films is a group sport, you know, and there's a lot of different artists working at the same time. And it's just always, you're always better off if they are all in communication with one another. And I'm fascinated with, with photography and, and, and lighting and um, I, 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 I'm just so much more attuned to it, I think, than I used to be. Well, talking about Take Shelter, there's an understanding of the whole picture that you would have to have, I think, to, for that film to work. Because, um, like you said, going in and having to do the scene in the therapist's office, you're going to have to kind of rely on what your other performers are doing and what, you, you know what I mean? I mean, there has to be communication there when you shoot something out of sequence that far. And when again, you draw from your library of the... Uh Library of Congress up here. Right. Like you, you think, okay, what was like the first time I was in a therapist's office? Because I've been in a therapist's office. Oh yeah, it was humiliating. Oh, you know, and you just you 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 send all your tentacles out and you find as much context as you can in your your own kind of history. Right. And, uh, you reference. You're always anybody in this business is referencing things that they have seen themselves. Bobby and Nocturnal Animals is not based on any one particular performance that I've seen somebody else do, but Bobby is part of a tradition. Somebody very correctly pointed out last night that, uh, you know, it's like, oh, it's kind of like uh, Jeff Bridges in Hell or High Water, you know? It's like this lineage of the Texas lawman that's going to, you know, settle the score. And I'm sure, you know, I'm, I'm That's in your referencing, subconscious. yeah, mo molecules here, molecules there of, of other versions of that that I've, that I've seen. Well, I, you know, I did wonder on Take Shelter, uh, Jeff Nichols said that he can write a script that has a lot of spaces in it without dialogue, and he knows that you'll fill them up with context. And, and so I guess I'm wondering, like in these long close-ups, and, and you're being, you're this guy, and I'm invested, and I'm an audience person, and, and there's no dialogue for 10, 12 seconds. Are you, during that take, on that set, are you thinking in character, or are you standing there thinking technically? They're on a close-up of me. I should look around. I should. That's a great question. I mean, um, and it's a tough one to answer. Because I think probably some takes I'm thinking in character and some takes I'm counting to ten, you know? Right. <laughs> you but don't does that happen you don't, you don't bat a thousand, you know? You don't, it's not like every single take that you ever do is, you know, you feel it in your toes. You know, sometimes you do a take and you're like, 
there was nothing happening. I didn't feel anything. I don't even know what was going on. And then sometimes you do a take and you're like, oh, that's the one, that's the one. And you know what? The director could completely disagree with you and feel the opposite way. The take that you thought was uninspired and lame is the best thing they've ever seen. And the take that you thought was the truth spilling out of you is going to wind up on an editing floor. I mean, all I can say is during Take Shelter, favorite's not even the right word, but it's, it's the most meaningful movie that I've made personally out of the movies that I, I have on my resume. It, um, it was a movie that made a lot of sense to me and, um, and that uh, had a very profound personal resonance for me. Why do you think that? Well, because I think it's a very poetic expression of, of a, a question that I've been struggling with for almost my whole life, which is, you know, how can you live in the world in which we live and not lose your mind? Like, how, how is that possible? How can you not be crushed by the sense that the world is completely going to shit? Because it is. That's not a, an opinion. And people say, oh, every generation feels like, I'm like, no, it's going to shit. We're fucked. So how do you, how do you, how are you able to maintain what is good about your life and still enjoy your life and have love in your life knowing that it can be taken away from you like that? And have kids. Which, yeah, the kids. Yeah. Which in that film so beautifully expresses the and I don't want to spoil it, but people should watch this film and pay attention to the relationship there, too. But mm. I feel that way, too. And I think that film does mix this internal idea of a mind breaking down and saying, is that the mind breaking down or is that the world breaking the mind down? Yeah. Is it me or the world or is it both? And there is, there's always a storm coming. And from every different person's point of view, you know. I have my version of what I think the storm is. You have your version of what you think it is. But everybody has a storm that's coming. Everybody has some, something on the horizon that just doesn't seem like good news, you know. Or, or not even on the horizon. If you, if you don't have a job, if you can't pay your bills, then the storm's right in your face. You know? Right. So it's the storm, it's a, it's a very, like I said, it's poetic. It's, it's not necessarily, the, the storm is a symbol for me of, like you said, chaos or, or circumstances that threaten to bring you down. You know? Is that, do you think that's a mindset that you've had since you were very young? Well, yeah, I've always, well, I've always been tremendously worried about the environment. When I was a teenager, I was a door-to-door canvasser. You were? I, I went door-to-door uh, not selling magazine subscriptions, but... Um, I worked for an organization called uh, Public Interest Research Group. It's uh, Ralph Nader's deal. Oh, yeah. PERG. They had one in, well, they had one at the time in Illinois. I've seen it in other states, too. And we go door to door, basically trying to get members and, you know, trying to get money for the organization. And, and it was all about air quality, water quality, you know, things that, like, if you can't breathe and you can't drink water, then what difference does anything else make? I mean, anything. And so, yeah, I was, I was tremendously concerned about it. Not that anyone whose door I knocked on seemed very concerned about <laughs> it. Uh, they, they didn't seem concerned about it at all. 
How old were you then? I was 16-ish. Yeah, it was the same year that I started going down into the city and auditioning for, for plays. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I could tell you about this week's sponsor, Mack Weldon. Now, if you're like me, you like your basics. You want comfortable and durable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, that kind of thing. Well, Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you will ever wear. They have a line of silver underwear, not actual silver, and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. And Mack Weldon wants you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it and they will still refund you. No questions asked. Not only does Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well too. They're great for working out, going to work, going out on dates, just everyday life. And the thing about Mack Weldon is they value their loyal customers. That's why they created the Weldon Blue Loyalty Program. Here's how it works. You go to their website, you create an account, it's totally free. You place an order for any amount and you never pay for shipping again. That's right, you never pay for shipping again. Once you purchase $200 worth of products from Mack Weldon, not only will you continue to receive free shipping, but you will also start saving 20% on every order you make for the next year. And then once you're at that $200 level too, Mack Weldon grants you access to new products before they're released to anyone else, as well as free gifts added to future orders. So for me, I've always been interested in the most comfortable essentials and in trying to have my basic wardrobe be classic and something that I can always feel good in. So when I went to the Mack Weldon website, I was really impressed by the way, not only everything was laid out, but the way that it spoke to me. It was uncomplicated while still being classic. And because they believe in smart design and premium fabrics, it just fits with my aesthetic. I especially like their dry knit cotton jerseys because I'm one of those people who I'm not going to wear the heavy workout gear that makes me look like I'm a sponsored athlete. I like stuff that, you know, wicks and vaporizes moisture and yet still feels sort of like clothing and not like, I don't know, some high tech version of an athlete's workout wear. I also love their swim line because they have this light, soft and smooth blend that dries quickly. And for me, I hate wearing wet board shorts forever. And I love when stuff dries really quickly. And bottom line, their briefs fit really well. They feel great. And it's sort of a no-brainer. Once you put them on, you just forget about them. So I had a great experience with Mack Weldon. The website's easy. The loyalty program is amazing. And it sort of just checks the box for me of I don't have to worry about finding those things anymore. Mack Weldon has my style and they've solved the shipping issues. And, and it's just, it's a great company. So if you haven't tried Mack Weldon, I urge you to check them out. Go to their website, MacWeldon.com, that's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, and enter the promo code OFFCAMERA, and you can get 20% off your first order. And then make sure to make an account, because that way you can get involved in this free shipping program, and MacWeldon can become your supplier for basics for your foreseeable future. So once again, go to MacWeldon.com, enter the promo code OFFCAMERA, you can get 20% off your first order. And then send me an email and tell me what you think of their basics. That's MacWeldon.com. Okay, now back to the show. I'm so curious about your upbringing, because I read a few things, and I want to ask you, you were born in Kentucky, right? Yes, the Good Samaritan Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. Were you, you know, as a young kid, were you an adventurous, curious kid? I mean, you out in the country playing in creeks? or what? I had a, a grandma who lived on the outskirts of town and had some a little bit of land, and 
a creek and things like that and a horse. Um, but when I turned 13, I, I got out of Kentucky and I went up to live with my father. Okay. Because, yeah, you're, I read your parents divorced and... Oh, like that. They, oh, they, you were very young. Oh, I don't remember them being together. Oh, wow. Okay. It was like being from two different planets. Yeah. So did you bounce around a lot between homes? Not really. I mean, when I, pretty much my young, my, you know, little boyhood, I was with my mom. And then when I started high school, I went to live with my dad. Before that, I would see my dad during the summer and at Christmas. What kind of uh, kid were you in high school? Were you a loner? Or well, you... high school was a disaster. I mean, oh, high school For was, me, too. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's a common refrain, but... Um, it really was a disaster. How so? I'm not going to get into it. Uh, it was that bad. It, it's really bad. Uh, I, and I didn't finish. I'm a, I'm a dropout, although I got my GED a few years later to make my dad happy. But um, in high school, what kind of kid was I? Well, when I started high school, I was in a different city with a bunch of kids I didn't know at a very large school. Uh, New Trier High School, they have, like, at the time, I think they had 4,000 students or something. It was as big as a small college, basically. Oh, wow. Uh, so my freshman and sophomore year, I went there, and I, do, I couldn't make friends to save my life. Um, do you think it was just, you well, were I different? Just, yeah, I was, you know, if you, if you try and insert yourself into some culture that's already been established, you know, all these kids in they went to grade school together, and they all right. knew each other. And here I, I was from Kentucky, and I was just some, yeah. I mean, I, I basically what I started doing at Nutria is I started acting. How'd you discover that? Well, I was just, you know, speech team, drama team. You know, you do little scenes in there, and then they'd have uh, auditions for, you know, they did like seven shows a year at Nutria. So I had that outlet, you know, and I, I made a couple of buddies there. And do you remember a time when you're like, oh, I like this? I, I yeah. feel like I fit or I feel well, like... I felt that at Nutria. In my junior year, I went back down to Kentucky. Oh, you did? Yeah. And then I really started getting serious about acting. Why did you go back down year. there? My dad was getting uh, divorced again. He was going through a divorce. The, the woman he was married to at the time, they were getting divorced and they were selling the house, and they were getting out of... Uh, I wouldn't have been going to that school anymore. God, kids have it so tough. Like, when you think of a kid just has to roll with whatever the adult, whatever decisions are made, and the kid has to figure it out and yeah. doesn't really get a say in it. Well, I could have stayed with him. I, honestly, he had signed me up. He was, he was trying. He, he signed me up for the Chicago Academy for the Performing Arts, actually, which would have been, that's a great school in Chicago specifically for acting and, and, and dance and stuff like that. And I was really excited to go. I was going to go. I was going to, but, but my dad was just in a bad, bad place and was not, um, it would have just been me and him and I wasn't up for that. So, <laughs> uh, so I went back down to Kentucky and uh, yeah, got really serious about acting. Do you remember like a performance that you did that? Well, I went back down in the, 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 the school they were doing Harvey. They were going to do Harvey. Oh, yeah. And they had auditions. The Jimmy Stewart. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
and they cast me as Dr. Chumley, which at that time was the biggest part I had ever received because uh, anything I did at Nutria was like bit parts, small parts, walk on, in the ensemble, dancing in the background, that kind of stuff. But this was an actual part. I was given an actual part in a great, it's a great play, Harvey. And I just had a blast. And then I started auditioning because Lexington actually had a couple of small theaters. And, uh, the Actors Guild of Lexington, Lexington Children's Theater, Acting Company for Teens. And I started doing that stuff outside of school. And then, and then that's, I guess, that moment that you were talking about, I started to realize that this might be more than just uh, something I'm doing to kill time and ease the pain, you know? Right. God, it's weird. I just, it breaks my heart to hear you say how much pain you were in and, and to read about that and, and, and you know, because, because I think that that's, like, ultimately you found something that probably saved your life, right? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I would be reluctant to... I don't think I would have died, but I, I, I'm not sure what would have happened. I guess I had a lot of inappropriate behavior, or I didn't really fit into um, like normal societal situations. Uh, I struggled with those, but the great thing about the acting is that I could go on stage and act like insane and you know where in real life if I acted that way I'd get chastised and punished or told to shut up you know when I when you do that on stage people like applaud and say wow you're you're a genius so it was a pretty easy bridge to cross yeah well you know I think of the scene in with the iron in uh, Boardwalk Empire, Boardwalk Empire yeah. and I think of the scene in Take Shelter where you go from a one to a ten on the, on the, the scale of rage when you f yeah. at the fish fry when you flip the table over, yeah. and there's there's this there's this energy that that goes right to you in both those scenes where people are genuinely afraid and and all of a sudden everyone in those rooms becomes a much better actor. <laughs> and I, and I wonder funny. if they're seeing something. Well, it's funny with the fish fry scene. Jeff didn't tell them what was going to happen. Oh, interesting. And he just put out a flyer. He's like. We're making a movie. You know, we were shooting this movie in uh, Grafton, Ohio, which is, I'm pretty sure it's the first time anybody's made a movie in Grafton, Ohio. Yeah. And so we were putting up little flyers like, you know, we're making this movie. We're going to have a nice dinner. Everybody, you get free fish, free French fries, all the pop you can drink. Come on by. It'll be great. It's brilliant. And so all these people are sitting there like, oh, this fish is pretty good. Oh. Who is that guy? I've seen him in a movie before. I don't know. And they're just kind of, you know, the next thing they know, I'm flipping over a table. And, and addressing all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, how many takes do you, like, you get one take where you surprise Yeah, we knew, right? yeah, we knew, when we went into that day, I'm like, Jeff, we, let's not do this over and over again. And he's like, no, I won't. Only. So we kind of did the grand coverage, you know, the big coverage on that maybe uh, t twice. And yeah, the second time they're they're less surprised, but there's still there's still had something happening. Is that the closest to like um a theater moment because I feel like in that fish fry scene 
it's a performance mm. that that is like a live experimental performance in a way. And hearing you describe it that way, it makes total sense. But but I wonder if in those moments, you know, you talk about going back into your Library of Congress. Mm. I wonder if you have a particular mastery of those moments based on your upbringing. I understand and agree with everything you just said, but I think, I think, I think, yeah, I think shooting that particular scene, that was a pretty primal thing. I bet. Yeah, I think the first time, at least the first time I did it, that was, that was something um, from deep, deep down. Seems, it seems interesting. Like, it's a nice example of, of a bigger conversation about acting, which is, you know, being able, to, being able to hold the energy of a whole room. Yeah. And to do that with extras or with people who had never acted before. I, I, I think if I had been more focused on kind of trying to direct the scene as I was doing it or to shepherd those people in any way, it probably wouldn't have worked. I just, I would catch people's eye that didn't feel, it did, where it didn't feel too threatening. It was really beautiful in a way, because there was nobody that I looked at when I was doing that that didn't seem like they couldn't handle it. Oh, really? They weren't like, don't you look at me. No one got up and ran? No. They were all, they were, they were, ta- they were absorbing it, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, but I, I think that what I take away from, from what you're saying and, and what you said earlier about being in a therapist's office and having to go back into your own life experience is an actor is going to have certain strengths that come from their life experience or certain yeah. moments that they can play in a more true way. Is that valid? Oh, yeah, definitely. On the other hand, one of the, one of the benefits of acting and one of the reasons I really enjoy doing it is you, you, it's, it's taught me so much about the world and it's um, shown me a lot of things I wouldn't have seen otherwise, you know. You're doing something that's outside of your experience, and the you know the the research you do, or uh, to learn about it enough to be able to do it is uh, it, you learn things in a much more um, meaningful way, I think, than if you were just like taking a class at the community center or something. Right. It's funny when you talk about the scene in Take Shelter and the scene in uh, Boardwalk Empire. I read something about your audition for Revolutionary Road, Mm. which was really you put yourself on tape with a casting director. And her response to your audition, I think she said something like, it was the first time in a room I've been genuinely hurt by an audition. (laughs) And I wonder if you recall that exchange, because I think the scene was... Uh, she played Kathy Bates' character. Right, and I say, why don't you do everybody a favor and why don't you shut up? Yeah. But I wonder how you said that in a way that where she, she lost the fact that it was acting for a minute, you know? Because she's the most jaded person of all. She's a casting director. Oh, casting directors, yeah. I felt this way about Bobby, too, in Nocturnal Animals, but I, I felt this way about John in Revolutionary Road. It's just, sometimes you get parts and you're just like, I just know how to do this. I just I feel it as like it's a perfect... Here's me and here's the part. And it's not that I am John Givings, but I just, and that specific line to the mom, it's just something, it's just something I know, you know, it's just something I understand. 
Well, what I love about that book is it describes what it's like to sort of that malaise you feel from repressing your life in the service of some waspy ideal or or community that, that you don't feel but you have to sort of follow the rules by. And John in that movie is the only one that's willing to call bullshit on that whole situation. And I mean, people have described insanity as people who are willing to live a life that is not ordinary and doesn't fit in those boundaries, right? Yeah. And so by all accounts, that character is mentally unstable or challenged or whatever you want to call it. But he's also the sanest one in the room. And I, I wondered when, you know, when you say that here's the character, here's me, what you have in common with that idea. Well, I, you know, a buddy of mine once told me, he's like, you know, the thing about you, Mike, and I said, what? He's like, you don't, you don't suffer fools. You just don't suffer fools. And I think he's right. I don't put up with foolishness. And, uh, you know, I don't think John does either. Yeah, and I think when I hear that particular description of his malady, I would say that anyone who takes on the profession of being an actor, sort of, that's sort of the definition of an actor's life too, is like you don't want to lead an ordinary life. You're, you don't want to be bound by convention, right? Probably the great draw of acting, I would assume, is you get to explore the boundaries outside of which most people make for themselves. Well, yeah, I'm totally uninterested in this, this whole notion of seeming like, you know, a real person or whatever. I, I, I just stopped caring about a long time ago. I mean, that's what is a real person. I mean, what I want to insert into people's, you know, psyche or conscious or whatever is, is the story. It's like it's not necessarily important to me that everyone walks away thinking, wow, another phenomenal performance by my, you know, I don't care. I, but, but, but I do want the story, and every story requires a certain method of telling it. It's not like, like with painting, you can be Jackson Pollock. You can just walk in and you can start drizzling shit on the floor. I don't think you can do that with acting. I don't think you can be Jackson Pollock with acting. I think you need to be precise and responsible and at the same time uh, unafraid of experiencing you know heavy shit that might not feel good well it's it's fascinating because because what you're saying is that that you you don't have this requirement to be a real person or how would a real person act and yet people are obviously relating to your characters i'm relating to your characters so maybe it indicates that the people we project to other people are are way more controlled and in line than who we are inside uh, you know that's really been my kind of thought for a long time now most people are so contrived to begin with i mean you can't help it so that's the reason I kind of thrown the the notion of trying to be a real person out the the window is because I just don't think it exists. Yeah, I was curious to know about after you left high school if if that was the beginning of your working career. Like, do we at that point yeah. forward were you just hustling and were you broke and well, trying yeah. to? Yeah, most of my twenties, I uh, yeah, I was pretty broke. I was just doing theater in Chicago because you started a Red Orchid. I, I was around when it started. Okay. I was Santa's elf. I was not Santa. Santa was <laughs> a fellow named Guy Howard Van Swearingen IV. 
AKA Buster. Guy was, he's one of my closest and dearest friends ever. And yeah, he, it was his idea to start it. He found the space, he turned it into a little theater. And, and you were what, 17, 18 at the time? Or? Let's see. Well, we're about to have our 25th anniversary next year. So I, I think I'm probably 18, maybe. Wow, it's so young to just jump into that lifestyle. And were you, were you just like living, you know, odd job to odd job and, and doing plays? Or and barely, even that. I, I was just, uh, yeah, I was, um, yeah, I was just doing, doing plays. I was non-equity, I wasn't in the union, I wasn't getting paid. Um, and you know, you do shows that people wouldn't even really come see. There was a, a restaurant coffee house called uh, Cafe Voltaire on Clark Street, just north of Belmont, kind of in Wrigleyville. And what we would do is at Cafe Voltaire, they had a basement that they would do, you could do shows in. They would book it like there would be like four or five shows every day, different people coming in and out of there. And it was really just a, 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 a barren basement room with a concrete floor and some folding chairs and like four clamp lights. That's all it was. But you could have it for free and then the deal was you just split the door with them. Whatever You could charge whatever you want, you give them half of it. And um, so I'd do shows down there in the basement. I did um, The Zoo Story, which was a popular play for young men to do. Uh, usually you do it in scene study or class, or scene study class or whatever, but it's like two fellas. All you need is a park bench. And I did it with my friend Dan. And uh, our thing was, our gimmick was that um, we weren't going to rehearse it. So if you came to the opening night of the zoo story, you would see the first time that we had ever done it. So did you have the play in your no, hands? No, we memorized or? it. Oh, you did? We memorized it. We were off book. Was that the most pure moment of theater ever in your life? Yeah, but it was interesting because we did it more than once. So, like, it actually, it was kind of, for the basement of a coffee house, a minor hit. So, you know, we actually wound up doing it, like, 20 times. And um, it was interesting to see, like, you can't, you know, the second time you do it, it's going to be different. The third time you do it, it's going to be different. And, uh but yeah, those those were the days when you were just like, you know, it's like skydiving or something. It's, it's just so excited. And, you know, we were charging like five bucks a ticket and making enough to go next to the L&L Tavern next door and get a, a couple of bush lights because they were on special and a couple of shots of Jim Beam and then go pass out. And we were sharing a studio apartment at the time. Um, you know, the, those were the days. You know, you, you mentioned being able to do the play over and over, and, and that's, I think, the big difference between theater and film is that in theater, it's a living performance that you can change. Like a song, you could, you could perform an acoustic one night, you could do a, a horn section the next. Whereas a film, like you talk, again, going back to that, that scene in Take Shelter where you're in there and you do the, the therapist's office, that's it. Yeah, you can't learn something about the character twelve days later and go back and go back. do the therapist's office again. I mean, well, that's where that's where, that's where the real 
zen of it is, you know? And the fact of the matter is, is, is people don't always know everything about what's happening to them. In real life. Yeah, and people are hardly ever prepared for what happens to them. And, and you also have to leave, you know, a lot of it is the audience's interpretation anyway. Like you could be filled with 500 different thoughts of what you're thinking, but the audience is going to, each individual person who sees it is gonna have their own version of it for themselves, you know. Movies is like, it's a, it's a grueling process. It's very surgical, it's, it's like, and you want it, and there is that pressure of not being able to return to it. But you just, if you can't handle it, then don't, don't make <laughs> movies. Look, you know, any director will tell you, you know, I'd like to go back and shoot my first week again. You know? Right, right. They're the ones that really suffer because they're the ones that, like, they need everything to be kick-ass from the get-go. Do you find when you do reshoots that, that the, uh, those first days are sometimes the things that are reshot, or is it new pieces of the story? I honestly very, very, very rarely do reshoots. Oh, I'm knock on... I think this is wood. Wood. Um, I really struggle with them. I mean, because I, I, I get into something that I'm doing, and then when it's over, I get out. And, and, and if you ask me to try and go back, I, I can't, like, it's not easy for me to do. That's interesting, because you, as I hear you talking, I hear you saying that, like, it almost doesn't matter. The Like, people don't know what's going on, they don't have it together, and they don't know what's going to happen in their lives, so any approach is valid, and yet you're also saying that when you're in there, you're all in, it's hard to go back. Well, you just, if you're being asked to show up and act like you're somebody else 12 hours a day, five days a week, you know, somewhere around the third week, it really stops being difficult, because you're like, well, I've been, this is what I'm doing right now. I do it every day. I come here, and I, this is what I do. But you know, a couple of weeks after you're done, it's it's gone. It's like a it's like a ghost. It goes away. You'd also sort of have to really understand that person and not be in judge. Like I, I would I would assume that you would have to sort of love them. It's interesting when I talk to my uh, I have two my mom and my sister both went to law school and I'm talking to my mom about it and. Uh, one day she said, yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, we have to, we have to uh, figure out how to uh, uh, prosecute and defend uh, the same case. So re represent the plaintiff, represent the defendant on the exact same case, all the same details. Oh, in law school, yeah. right, to, be, yeah, to yeah. play devil's advocate. To yeah, be able yeah, to... you know, that's a, the kind of mind you have to develop as an actor just to be able to to understand people that you wouldn't otherwise probably even attempt to understand, yeah. Yeah, do you ever think in meta terms of what your job really is as an actor? Oh yeah, definitely. And, it, and you know, it's changed, but I, I feel like, you know, it's ironic considering I'm a high school dropout what I'm about to say, but I think being an actor more than anything is, is, is being a student, but not, not a student of any particular class, but just a student of, of life and a student of um, the world. And 
am staying, you know, humble no matter what because, not because it's the right thing to do, but because it's the only way you're going to be able to receive what you need to receive and to give what you need to give. And connect with an audience. And yeah, yeah. I wonder what comes first. I wonder if you are a person who always has an eye on behavior and, and on, on learning and, and on trying to understand how the world works, so you become an actor, or, or do you love acting so then you become... For me, I, kind of like I alluded to earlier, when I started acting, I, I had a lot of artillery to, to send out uh, to, into the world. And uh, I was very interested in getting what was inside of me out. And, so it was a like cathartic and, type. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's changed now. Like, I'm like, okay, well, I got that off my chest, but now this is my job. And uh, so what do I do now? And, you know, like I say, I just I keep looking for projects that um, where I feel like I'm going to get more of a fuller experience of of life for the world or and maybe provide that for other people. What do you think it boils down to in terms of your love of it now? Like what do you still love about about the process? Wow. Like what days I just, do you I get? just love I love that feeling where you know sometimes you do a take and you come back and the director's there and you can tell that you've surprised them. And the directors I work with, by and large, is pretty damn hard to do because they're very prepared. They've thought about it more than anybody else by a country mile. It's not even close. You know, and people like Jeff or, you know, with Tom with Nocturnal Animals, they've already, they've already seen the movie in their head. They've worked on it so hard. And um, when you come back, and you can see that you've literally you just you've just surprised them. I, that's I mean that's exciting, but uh, it's also just I mean I have to say I love the process, but I'm also I'm also very satisfied like seeing the film. If if the film is lives up to some sort of expectation. If it doesn't completely blow, you know, like something like uh, Ninety Nine Homes, I think that movie is very important. What a great film! It's a very important movie, and I'm I'm very proud that I made it. And uh, and um, and when people come up to me and they say they saw it and it made them think about things or aware of things that they weren't aware of, then then that's something that feels like an accomplishment, you know. Well, listen, I've been amazed with your career. I think I was first aware of you without being aware of you on things like Groundhog Day and stuff, and, and Revolutionary Road really got me, and then I saw Return, and that, that got oh, me, wow. and, and um, the Graham Parsons film. Oh, you saw that? Yeah, I oh, love that. I'm a big man. Graham Parsons fan. And, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and, and you pop up in these films, and, and uh, I think the one common denominator of your career is that you pick really unique, original 
high quality films that have a real independent spirit to them for the most part. And like I say, you've done 10 in the last year. And I would say the common denominator is not that you probably had a nice trailer or 60 days <laughs> to shoot them or anything. Like I think, I think no actors are making a ton of mo money on, the, on these films, but maybe that's the price you pay for doing great work. Yeah, although I'm kind of on the the war path a little bit about that. I, I, How so? I, 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 well, I've just gotten tired of this whole notion that you can do something you love for free or some project that you hate and get paid. Like I, I don't, I don't <laughs> see why they have to be so exclusive. With That's, one that is, there's sort of something to that, isn't there? Well, I'm, I'm against it. Well, of course. I mean, I, look, it would be lovely to get paid the most for films like, you know shotgun stories and, and then have to go sort of you know struggle a little bit on when you play Zod yeah 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 like, that would be odd wouldn't yeah. it <laughs> that would be weird <laughs> schedule F for Man of Steel yeah yeah, yeah. yeah no. schedule F is uh, is that stands scale? for schedule yeah it's uh, <laughs> means you're schedule free it means you're doing it for free basically after you pay your taxes and commissions, and it's a diabolical little contract. But um, yeah, that's what a lot of the uh, the small budget movies go for. But anyway, I'm just I'm just trying to, you know, honestly, I would do that forever if I was, if it was just me. But I, you know, I have two kids, and I'm just not interested. In no, it's screwing around. It's you know, I wonder because there, we have a plethora of entertainment. And we have amazing shows on all kinds of devices and networks and yeah. all these films that are out there. And I do wonder how the future sustains itself when we sort of expect our entertainment at a very low price. And you know what I mean? I think that... I saw a guy on the subway the other day watching North by Northwest on his iPhone. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? You can't watch a Hitchcock movie on your iPhone. I'm sorry. This it's not right. Yeah, obviously I could talk to you about this forever, <laughs> but um, I, I've just I've just really enjoyed watching your career and and the films you do, and and it's kind of that thing when when you've chosen to take on a film, it's kind of like I don't have to read a review or anything. I'm I'm just gonna go see it, and <laughs> that's a cool body of work to put together. And I'm I'm thankful that you came in here and did this, and oh. I look forward and see what you do next. Thank you, Sam. Yeah, yeah well. We'll see how many movies it is next year. Yeah, well, maybe you can beat your record. I'm to top myself. Gotta go for 11. I'm just gonna go out and make like five movies today. On my, on my flip phone. Yeah, there yeah. you go. <laughs> Cheers, thanks, Sam. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. That's our show for today. And I just want to say, as much as I've been enjoying the conversations with guests on the show, I've also loved hearing from you guys, the listeners. So if you have any ideas, comments, thoughts to share about the show, drop me a line. I'm Sam at offcamera.com. I always love getting emails and finding out a little bit more about the people that tune into off camera. So drop me a line. Let me know about your life. I mean, are you an actor? Do you own a business? Are you an inventor? Are you a teacher? It's nice to know who's listening and what's going on in their lives. 
And please tell your friends about the show. And hopefully we can spread the word and keep this thing going for many more seasons. So thanks for listening. See you next time off camera.